Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. So a big warm welcome from me, the host of the Work Life Hub podcast, Agnes Uheretsky, to Dr. Keisha Thomas, who is joining me today from Alabama. Uh, good morning, Keisha, and thank you so much for, for coming on this podcast and, and having this very important conversation with me today. Good morning, Agnes. I'm very happy to be here. So, of course, we had our little uh, pre-podcast conversation a while ago, and then we were just talking about Nicole Hannah-Jones and, you know, all the, all the things that were happening with her at the University of uh, North Carolina. But in the meantime, we've had uh, Naomi Osaka, we had Shakari Richardson, and just yesterday, Simone Biles, and, and somehow the world conspired to give us more food for conversation in, unfortunately. in our podcast. Unfortunately, yes. unfortunately, but somehow I feel that, um, you know, me here in Belgium, knowing about these things and having uh, this media attention on these issues and thanks to media and these very high profile events, I think it's, mm -hmm. we have to, you know, use this as an opportunity to confront these issues and, and learn from them, right? So in a way, is it good that these things are coming out in the open and it's disturbing to all of us? Well, and I feel as a, you know, the experiences of these very high profile young women has really given voice uh, to many of us who are old enough to be their parents. I mean, mm -hmm. so I think um, Nicole Hannah-Jones in particular, you know, her... Um, response to the you know final offer of tenure really I think spoke to the experiences of so many women of color especially black women in the academy about like you know what could she do more to obtain tenure or, or, or an offer I mean Pulitzer Prize winner Peabody MacArthur Genius Grant I mean and I think it has sent a message that the experience that so many women have had that, you know, in some ways it can feel as though you can never be good enough. Well, then we saw living evidence of this play out at Chapel Hill. And then for her to feel so empowered to turn them down and say, no, actually, you're not enough, I think was just very empowering. Absolutely. So um, I have read with great interest uh, your research and, and some of your, your um, research papers, articles and guides. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I wanted to discuss with you is um, I think by now we more or less have a good understanding of what makes a workplace not inclusive or where, what is discrimination, how does it manifest um, what, what creates, um, you know, hostile climate. So even if we may not necessarily abide by all of them, we have a good inkling of what that is. Um, but I've read with great interest some of your points around um, when, when good intentions go bad, right? So when, mm -hmm. when we, we believe that we're having all these good intentions and we're creating um, inclusive uh, workplaces, when in fact, 
we're maybe even perpetuating victimization or perpetuating some of the, the practices that are going to hold back women of color. So can you take me through a little bit this whole idea and, and how you maybe conceptualized it? Sure. Yeah. And I think a lot of it for me was kind of this developmental experience of being surrounded by very nice people, colleagues and friends in my community, but also kind of growing in my sophistication around diversity resistance and the sometimes benevolent ways in which um, prejudice and discrimination can present themselves. So, um, Agnes, what I began to kind of understand in spaces where I didn't necessarily feel 100% welcomed, but maybe simply tolerated, Mm -hmm. again, very nice people, but sometimes they would say things that, you know, if you listen very closely, could almost seem like a veiled insult (laughs) or threat. So I think about ways, you know, or times in which people, you know, would comment and say, oh, you're so articulate, or when they spoke um, to my Asian students and would say, well, where are you from, Georgia? Where are you really from? You know, wanting to hear something more. But even, you know, the, you know, typically colorblind, you know, response of, you know, I don't see differences, I don't see race, I don't see gender. Well, one, we know that's absolutely not the case. And what's wrong with seeing race and gender when we want to kind of push those identities aside? It sends the message that, you know, it is something almost to be shameful of. Mm. Um, and even, you know, our early language around diversity, and I'm thinking, you know, late 80s, 90s was really around tolerating diversity, mm-hmm. which again sends the message that there's something bad about it or, or something um, that we should have this collective shame about rather than um, seeing the value in it and appreciating it. So, I, I, again, I think for many of us who may have been socialized or grew up in a certain era, you know, that was the the mindset that we should be colorblind, that we should not, you know, um, admit to noticing differences because if you notice differences or you at least admit to it, then you risk acting upon those differences in ways that could label you um, a racist, which of course is, you know, one of the worst things you could be called. Mm. And I think, you know, these are such very, very important issues, but I also find very um, sensitive in a way, even for me, to be Mm -hmm. having this conversation with you. Um, I grew up in Hungary in the 70s, 80s, which was 99.9% white. And my first um, uh, experience with uh, having a black uh, classmate was she was from Madagascar and it was uh, in my first year of, of senior high. So I was 15. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and until then I had no experience. So in a way, even for me, I feel like having this conversation, am I equipped, you know, to have this sensitive conversation with you? And I'm kind of checking myself whether I'm going to blunder <laughs> into some area that I don't oh, think definitely. I should be speaking of or about, 
But as you say, it comes from a place of good intention because we do want to address these issues. We do want to bring this to our audience, you know, amplify your voice, amplify the voice, even if, you know, as a white person in, in a way, uh, I guess that's what perhaps an ally is, or I hope to be that, you know, to to be able to have these kind of conversations, because I think it's only, it's very much always through these uncomfortable conversations that there is growth, right? And learning for right. everyone involved. Well, and I think you bring up a really interesting point. It's that anxiety around making a mistake or perhaps appearing oppressive in some ways that really limits our willingness to engage across groups, especially, you know, dominant to marginalized group. But we have to make the leap, right? And we have to be willing to kind of mess up, hear the feedback, learn from it and move forward. You know, I heard that every year when I was teaching my psychology of prejudice class, you know, students sometimes just felt paralyzed. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think, you know, as I mentioned, it, it is growing up with uh, colorblind messages, but it's also the misinformation and the stereotypes mm -hmm. that are so deeply embedded in almost every system that we have contact with. Um, you know, our education system, the history that we learn about some people, which aspects of history that we learn and the other aspects we never learn. You know, I think um, for African Americans, you know, elementary children really only experience black history around Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, mm -hmm. um, and as enslaved people, but never people, you know, who have made contributions or who resisted their oppression. Mm -hmm. And so when we only share certain parts of the history or one side of the story, we reinforce the mindset that, you know, these people are uncomfortable to be around and maybe they're overly sensitive and it's easier to just not engage. Absolutely. And, and also, um, I think here in, in a European perspective, there is a lot of this uh, colonial past that is there, but not there. It's in, uh -huh. it's in the buildings, it's in the riches, yes. it's, in the, it's there, but we don't speak about it. I mean, personally, I haven't ever really studied it even, you know, because my country has never had a colony. So I thought maybe they thought, okay, let's not you know, make ourselves feel worse about it or because we didn't, ha haven't had achieved this. So, so um, how can we bring these sensitive conversations to the workplace? How could mm -hmm. we create opportunities for honest um, conversations, as you say, in psychological safety, where we can make mistakes, where we can blunder, but definitely without the fear of, a negative repercussion on, on people's careers or, you know, ha having that kind of a double fear or double anxiety if right. it's in the context of the workplace. Yeah, you know, that's a difficult um, task. And, you know, I've had experience with, you know, certain organizational cultures, um, you know, immediately kind of turn off because, kinds of conversations when they enter the office 
Yeah, I've certainly had uh, former PhD students who are off on internship and there would be something significant going on in the community. And even if they were to bring it up during lunch, you know, on premises, they would get the message back. Oh, we don't talk about those this issues This is a place here. of work. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is, you know, we, we focus on other issues. And I think, you know, again, that sends the message to, you know, that underrepresented um, colleague that your experience isn't valid and what your community might be experiencing isn't really significant. And also that, um, you know, the actor themselves is not seeing themselves a part of this story. Like this is something for those people to deal with rather than something that we all need to address. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the strategies I've used um, in a, a prior organization was to start a book club mm-hmm. and to have a common book where you're focused on the actors and the stories in that book, um, I think relieves some of the burden to be kind of self-revealing or to be perceived as racist or oppressive. Um, because then you're focused on the actors in those stories and they're not real, they're made up. Um, so I think, you know, fiction books or memoirs can kind of occupy that space, but also, you know, I love Beverly Tatum's Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Because, you know, she shares real life stories you know, for her as a teacher, but also, you know, her children, her research, and then grounds it within the social science and, and helps us better understand why these things happen the way they do. Mm. Now, would you mind also talking to us and walking us through the pet to threat uh, phenomena that, that you labeled and you researched and also wrote about? Because I read some of these articles, yeah. and I think it's very interesting um, to for you really to have put your finger on it um, and, 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 you know, show a little bit what we already discussed about the kind of good intentions. Right. Um, Definitely. Because yeah, it definitely reveals itself in this um, phenomenon. So I have to um, kind of share with you. So this work, um, the, the data collection and subsequent chapter that was published in 2013 was done with several colleagues, Juanita Johnson-Bailey and Rosemary Phelps, but also two of my former students who are now doctors, uh, Lindsay Johnson and, and Mia Tran. So um, my colleagues, Juanita, Rosemary, and I were attending a workshop for senior women leaders who um, were kind of deemed by their institutions as perhaps, you know, potential provosts and presidents. So imagine being in a community of these really high potential, strong academic leaders. And so Rosemary, I should say Rosemary and Juanita were also African-American, are also African-American women. So you know, during these workshops, we would often have a break and a woman came up to me from a certain Ivy League institution and she said, Juanita, Juanita. And I stopped and looked at her and she's like, oh, you're not Juanita. Sorry. So one, there was the not being able to keep us straight. <laughs> and then secondly, she said, you know, I just so appreciate when you contribute to our discussions. I am, I am just so 
so, uh, yeah, I just find everything you say so valuable. And, you know, I was wondering, did you attend a workshop or some training on public speaking? And I like stopped <laughs> and thought, hmm, yes. You know, I attended the Condi Rice School of Public Speaking because this is when Condi Rice was Secretary of State. And she stopped and looked at me and she was, oh, you're joking. And then I just kind of walked away. But again, here is a room of women, you know, who are PhDs and senior managers managing, you know, millions of dollars in their institutions. And she's complimenting me on how articulate I am. So that is actually just an aside, but a piece of the, you know, people wanting to give a compliment but then demonstrating perhaps their more deeply seated beliefs around who they believe you are. Mm, and what you're capable of and, and yeah. Right, just mind blowing. Mm. Well, while we were doing this year long workshop, <clears throat> we started to hear like some pretty consistent stories. Mm -hmm. So for the younger um, women who were attending again, you know, people who had some significant credentials, almost all of us worked in environments where we were one of very few women. And if you were a woman of color, you essentially were, you know, first of your kind or the only one of your kind mm -hmm. within your department or work group. And for the younger women, we would hear, you know, again, about the isolation. Um, but we would start to hear stories about them feeling underutilized, like they had gone to school all this time, they had had all these accomplishments and credentials, but they really weren't feeling as though they were able to fully utilize what they were bringing into mm -hmm. that department. And instead, they said they felt overutilized for the kind of diversity capital that mm -hmm. they brought into those environments. So being interviewed um, by, you know, the faculty newspaper, being used in the, you know, public relations, being placed on the website. So the and token, one, the token. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Look what we got. Yeah. <laughs> you know, look, we're diverse now because we have, you know, X. Yeah. And I, I will never forget one um, woman. She was a physicist. And she was in a really high profile institution. All of her colleagues were much older men and how they were very kind of protective of her. Again, you know, representing that sense of benevolent discrimination. Um, and, you know, at a couple points, you know, someone would say to her, oh, you remind me of my daughter or they would pat her on the back. I mean, like a pet. Yeah. And, you know, just these incredible stories. And and for these women, it created a sense of um, somewhat like disorientation. You know, what is my career path going to be? How long do I have to put up with this? And I think many of them began to think about opting out and mm -hmm. like pursuing a different path. And then there were these senior women who had kind of stayed the course, jumped all over every hurdle. And they would say, you know, they too still experience the sense of, you know, isolation and alienation, not having a lot of other women or women of color within their um, departments or in their, <clears throat> excuse me, day-to-day -day life. 
But they would say, you know, I've done this for 12, 15 years, and I don't feel like I'm getting the same rewards and recognition as everyone else. And in fact, um, I feel as though I'm, I'm locked out of some opportunities. And even when I get access, perhaps I'm not treated the same, which is a common experience of access and treatment discrimination. And what was even more interesting for these more senior women is that they would also talk about their support systems, right, that they had as junior, you know, exciting um, professionals, that their support systems started to erode. So it was not only kind of marriages and partnerships, it was relationships with colleagues, even with family members who would kind of question their ambition and ask kind of, why isn't this good enough? Why aren't you satisfied when the men around them are able to, you know, continue to pursue new levels of leadership and authority? And so, again, there is this kind of, you know, this is where I'm at, I'm not happy with it, and I'm willing to do something about it because I've already put, you know, 15 or 20 years. And so these women, I think, oftentimes were more mobile. And so they were, um, they had career mobility, both in moving from institution to institution, but also changing industries. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that willingness to just immerse yourself in something totally new. Mm -hmm. I think many of them also considered kind of an entrepreneurial route and doing something in addition to their main job um, that would give them that sense of value and control without having to kind of negotiate the battles of um, being, you know, seen and having a sense of worth. So, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of people have kind of grasped on to this language of experiencing, you know, being treated like a, a pet and being, you know, overutilized and perhaps exploited for the diversity that you offer versus, you know, women who were more senior <clears throat> as not having that same rewards and recognition and, and seeing that support system really kind of erode. Um, and never be really interesting. Enough. Yeah, yeah, and what we see, in what we the the, the cases we have evoked with Nicole Hannah Jones and and the others that it's never good enough, right? That they do wouldn't yes. get the so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think sometimes yeah. the the his, the the um, response is you know again like well why you you know why aren't you satisfied why isn't this good enough. Um, where we would never make those responses to a man. Absolutely. We would see their ambition as natural and and justified given their credentials or maybe just given their manhood. Mm -hmm. And so when when I'm listening to you, I'm getting really the the sense that, that there may be two kinds of organizations. One where somehow from a top-down approach, they understood that they need diversity for one reason or other without actually having confronted bias or, you know, rolled out training or 
you know, doing whatever needed to be done to ensure that the organization is in fact inclusive and doesn't offer up a hostile environment that uh, these biases do not get in the way of um, the processes of recruiting or um, career advancement, talent management or mentoring. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but on the other hand, are there organizations who um, are naturally a welcoming and, and, and inclusive place to work where, where women would not have this kind of, or every organization would have to benefit. I'm just, I'm just trying to, you know, somehow I'm looking through the rotodex of my brain in, in terms mm-hmm. of organizations, you know, I have worked with, or I have met and, and I can definitely see these telltale signs that you're right. talking, but mm-hmm. I also have worked in some of these, especially NGOs or civil society organizations where I didn't feel, you know, that this was the case, where they didn't so much resist uh, diversity, where they were actually embracing diversity and, and making sure that the workplace was inclusive. Yeah. Well, Agnes, I don't know if I could say, you know, there there are certain types of industries mm-hmm. or organizations that are more diversity friendly versus resistant, but I think so much of it um, is a reflection of leadership. Mm-hmm. So when leaders model um, you know, all of these kind of inclusive values of making sure we're, you know, attending, you know, to the slate of nominees for our professional development program, when they normalize talking about diversity within every meeting and not having a standalone meeting on diversity, when um, they, you know, do the kind of diversity awards and recognition in the same time that they're talking about sales or research or, or, or teaching and, mm-hmm. and don't position diversity as this other thing side, that has their separate, right. You, when you do that, you send the message that perhaps it's less important. It's kind of like putting the diversity chapter at the end of, of a book of a management book. Yeah. yeah that yeah. says a, a lot about the lack of integration, right? And, you know, how it is just a part of every um, function of every business, every university, and it it shouldn't be siloed into these separate conversations, because when that happens, it just really subordinates it relative to all the other issues that, you know, we're trying to deal with as leaders. Mm. Uh, what other telltale signs may be there for you know to 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 understand whether organization whether whether an organization is resisting diversity? So I guess for listeners, you know, listening, they could maybe also audit a little bit their organizations to say, okay, is this happening in our workplace? Should mm-hmm. we look at this more? Whether are we tokenistic? Are we you know using this as a kind of a uh, a pink washing or black washing or rainbow washing, whatever it is, <laughs> uh, or or are we genuinely reckoning with our, our you know our way of working and our way of of working with our employees and valuing them? Right. You know, so whenever you know I have the opportunity to engage um, with a new um, institution, or you know, even when I was. Um, on the job market and, and looking at um, potential employers, you know, one, I look at, you know, the issue of does the diversity rhetoric match the reality? 
So yeah, organizations can quickly learn to push out messaging and, and websites and photography that positions it as a diversity leader. But when you look more deeply, you know, is there truly diversity um, throughout the ranks? Mm -hmm. And if there is diversity, I want to make sure that it's not only at one particular level, which is, you know, too frequently the lowest level, or that it's not only within one functional area. So in a corporate organization, is it only in Martin? you know, marketing and not in operations or HR. Exactly. So, you know, these demographic fault lines can occur in organizations, but if you look at the broad numbers, you know, everything might look good, but when you look more closely, um, then that can really kind of show you where there might be areas of resistance or just not organizations keeping up with the values that those you know, leaders are, are trying to put forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also important to look at, you know, where do women or people of color, you know, get recruited into? How long do they stay? And what is the rate of turnover? And, you know, exit data. Oops, there goes my your phone. Yeah, exit data is really important. Um, you know, why do people tell you that they're leaving? And are you collecting that data in a way that people can truly be honest about the, you know, why they're leaving? Because too, or, too many organizations just want to say, oh, those people couldn't cut it or they weren't committed. When it may truly be that you know, people never felt valued or they felt exploited. Um, and so that's why they, they chose to leave. Um, I'm also interested in one of the things I used to do in my previous um, institution would um, collect data on the people who turn us down. So mm-hmm. when we make an offer, you know, where did you go instead um, and why? And, you know, what did, that organiza- what did that organization have or do differently that was more appealing to you that would drive you towards them and away from us? Um, and I think that that's really um, significant. You know, we, we talked already about ways in which organizations can give um, kind of um, diversity rhetoric, um, but not live out those values. So again, the, you know, when do we recognize diversity? Is it an everyday phenomenon embedded in all of our meetings and conversations versus a, a one-off event? And I think, you know, far too many organizations don't pay attention um, to the broader community in which they mm-hmm. exist because many of the workers or, you know, staff members are going to come from that local community. So in what ways are you engaging with the community in mutually beneficial ways, not simply taking or not having a deficit mindset of we're going to fix them, but in what ways it can that relationship be mutually informative and build you know, a pipeline of employees or um, create a greater sense of value and, and commitment for those you know, who come into the organization from the local community. And then the last thing is leadership. You know, when I have had the opportunity to talk to a potential client or a boss, 
You know, I'm, I'm listening carefully to the language that they use. If they say something like, I need a diverse hire, you know, that, that person perhaps may not be as comfortable in these conversations. Um, and they're, they're using kind of outdated language or language to me that signals they're uncomfortable with saying underrepresented or uncomfortable mm -hmm. saying, you know, we really don't have many black and Latino um, employees in this organization. Um, and, you know, to what extent are they on the ground, you know, engaging in the training, having difficult conversations? Um, and then finally, are they are they creating opportunities for others' development as, as well as their own kind of multicultural development? I think the best thing that leaders can do um, is to put themselves in uncomfortable situations where they are underrepresented, um, that they are the learner, um, but also to find ways to mentor people who are different from yourself and create um, a developmental relationship for both yeah. parties where you are learning about, you know, perhaps this young Asian woman's experience of being in this organization and how she experiences it, how, what potential she sees for herself in that organization, you know, to get that first hand knowledge and um, to listen to it um, and validate it rather than challenge it. Um, is something that I think is invaluable for leaders. I think these were all really, really great. And um, and I could already recognize, you know, some, some that I have witnessed or some that I haven't. Mm -hmm. um, would you say that it's important also for organizations to, uh, when they're serious about diversity, to, to commit to creating a critical mass uh, and not just have that one or two, but but really understand that there's only going to be, um, I, I have I, in one of the Indian, uh, one of the podcasts with an Indian um, uh, HR leader, uh, mm -hmm. she was mentioning, you know, the, the real challenge of having uh, women in India be promoted to board levels, because on the one hand, they have a huge problem with sexual harassment and misconduct, and also a lot of, you know, the patriarchy and, and this gender discrimination. Right. And she said that in their experience, having had only one woman on the board was not enough because she would become the container of mm -hmm. the problems of all the women in the organization. They would come to her, but she had nobody else to back her up when, when you know, she would take these issues or problems or anecdotes I mean, real experiences to the board meeting, she would still be just the only one, you know, and, and there was nobody else to, to, to team up with her to say, now we need change or have a, you know, right. amplify her voice. So I'm always thinking that then it's probably somehow better to go from zero to a minimal critical number. And because I would also, I, I could just feel, I could empathize with having, you know, somebody looking around and seeing, am I the only one here? Am I just the token Asian or black person or disabled person here uh, to look good on the photos? So would you, would you support my theory that, that they should try? Oh, to I think a, a, a critical mass, critical mass is um, really vital, right? 
for underrepresented group members to truly feel a sense of empowerment and inclusion in those spaces. Um, and I think, you know, um, the work on um, women and men in the corporation um, done, you know, in the early 70s um, really demonstrates, you know, how tokens are so limited. And I think, you know, of a token individual today going into a high level position, um, you know, would be empowered by having others kind of diversify their group, not necessarily replicate them in regards to their identity, but the more, you know, individuals around you who challenge that status quo helps to erode <laughs> the status quo. Um, and so it's mm -hmm. not only about um, kind of recruiting and retaining a, a critical mass, it's also recruiting and retaining allies and people who are willing to kind of speak up and push mm -hmm. back when old kind of status quo policies and groupthink undermine um, our ability to be inclusive in our organizations and departments. So I think, you know, recruiting a critical mass of people who are the same but different from the norm is, is a hard challenge. But finding multiple ways in which that critical map, I'm sorry, finding multiple ways in which that status quo is challenged um, and kind of broken apart, mm -hmm. I think is probably a, a really effective and, and useful way for underrepresented group members to find community because there are some common elements of, of oppression that uh, we experience as minority group members. But again, to be able to kind of call out outdated modes of working and relating to one another um, in the workplace. And would you say that um, if organizations are really serious about this and they, they're really making a big change, and we've seen a number of organizations who really decided through one you know, scandal or or just a change of leadership, but who somehow decided, okay, we're going to be very serious about this. But then those people who hold these outdated beliefs would potentially experience a greater threat than just having that one off, you know, colleague enter and then um, who could be treated as, you know, in, in, in this very patronizing way. And I guess that these pet theories or the pet uh, um, uh, phenomenon is, is because they perhaps didn't feel threatened at that point. So they were able to still deploy this affectionate paternalistic uh, behavior, I guess. But um, we work a lot with the United Nations and their push for gender parity in field operations and especially in these very masculine sectors like peacekeeping or engineering, we see a lot of the way men would feel threatened because if, you know, there's a challenge to the value of their work, uh, you know, having women's work, but also somehow the work of black women associated with a low value, you know, historically, I mm -hmm. guess, uh, associated with a lower value work Right. I wonder if the men then, the majority would say, okay, if, if they can do this work, 
that I'm doing, then that's going to diminish the value or standing of my work or its reputation. So there's, I, I find also there is this this element of a of a greater threat to them and and uh-huh. then putting up resistance or sabotaging or or becoming plainly cruel uh, in in some of the ways. Right, and it may not even be. Um you know, a consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. It just may, you know, be a feeling of, um, you know, discomfort that, you know, drives, you know, that, that those kind of negative and counterproductive responses to people who are, are different. Um, and I think you're, you're right. And again, that is, a reflection of all the ways in which, you know, racial and gender stereotypes are so deeply embedded um, in, you know, how we relate and think about members of different groups. Um, And, you know, the expectation that women, especially women of color, are their responsible, you know, their responsibility is really around service, support, and housework. And care. Yeah. And care, not uh, making decisions about money, resources, developing policies and enacting and acting upon those policies and essentially um, demonstrating yeah. leadership. Yeah, 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 right. yeah. absolutely. Right. No, it's, it's a fascinating conversation. I, I think that um, uh, it's, it's great to have this open, on, you know, conversation with you and and I, I'm taking so much away from all the different points that, that you made. So maybe just as a last question, um, Keisha, if I could ask you, what would be your advice to organizational leaders or uh, maybe informal leaders or people who want to be allies? You know, what would be for you the kind of top priority or top action organizations could take to make sure that that they go beyond the tokenism and and create really diverse and inclusive workplaces. What are for you mm-hmm. the kind of you in your recent um, you know research or conceptualizations the kind of the key things they need to be focusing on? Yeah. So I will offer two sets of recommendations. The first is really around the leader themselves and investing in their own development as inclusive leaders. And so we we talked about the importance of upward mentoring and forming developmental relationships with protégés who are different from yourselves, engaging in training, putting yourselves in situations in which you experience this uh, reality of what it's like to be underrepresented. Um, All of those things are important. I I think there's even um, room for coaching Mm. to have a trusted colleague who likely is going to be someone different from yourself, uh, with whom you can be honest about, you know, your sense of resistance, um, your difficulty in, in pushing forward, perhaps the, the pushback that you receive as you try to be a more inclusive leader, because that's going to be a part of the reality as well. People now will question um, your fitness and your authority. Um, oh, the and the you to Yeah, yeah. And your motives. Yeah. Right. It's going to come from all different directions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think all of those things are really important. But then as you lead your organization to be a more inclusive space, 
too often we rely only on training and that mm -hmm. is a mistake. Mm -hmm. Training alone is not going to change anything um, because we often don't pay attention to the climate for training transfer. So if, you know, if I, you know, train a student how to use Excel, and then I put them in a classroom with no computers or no Excel programs or no one else who can use Excel. Well, guess what? They're not going to use it. It's not going to be a valued uh, use of their, their time. But if we pay attention to the ways in which we create community around diversity and inclusion training, give people opportunities to process collectively and decide their way forward and demonstrate you know, the application of that knowledge and give them opportunity to practice. Um, you know, it's been really helpful for me when I've given participants and opportunities to develop scripts that they personally know that they can use, that they're comfortable with, when they are faced um, with someone who makes one of those, you know, um, compliments that sounds like, you know, a veiled insult, um, to give them the opportunity to reflect and, and practice, then empowers them in the future to use those scripts when they are available. So training is not enough, but you also have to be willing to get people to behave differently, even if they haven't fully bought on to the value of diversity, inclusion, mm -hmm. and belonging. And I see those things as needing to occur simultaneously. So putting policies and practices in place as the standard operating procedure so that perhaps people are acting differently mm -hmm. <laughs> or acting against their you know, attitudes while they're also being trained about why these practices are needed and necessary. So in some ways you're creating a sense of dissonance while you're also empowering them with information and education. Mm -hmm. um, and then ultimately it's up to the individual employee if they want to continue. Because in that sort of environment, they may say, yes, you know, I feel newly empowered, I feel effective, I feel more a part of a community, or they may decide that, no, I can't do this, I don't want to be evaluated based upon, you know, how well I lead a multicultural group of workers, and I'm out. And that's a fine outcome as well, right? That creates an opportunity for you to recruit someone who's more aligned with your values as an inclusive leader. Yes, and with the aspirational culture that you are wanting to create, if, if an organization is going through a transformation, then there will be people who will opt out, uh, who are no That's longer right. associating themselves with the new, and then there will be other people who will opt in, who hopefully mm -hmm. will amplify the plans and, and the, the ambition and, and what the, the organization is trying to achieve. Exactly. Oh, wow. I really enjoyed. Thank you so much. These, these, uh, also your advice. I think that was so, um, uh, you know, eye opening because I think we are in a, uh, in a way, always thinking either, or, you know, should we have training or should we have policies? Should we have behavioral coaching or should we have the, this? So, so I, I, um, I think that's great that you really put the two together and highlighted that we need 
all of them in place. And, and I think that's very important. I guess that's also where, you know, push comes to shove. If people think, oh, well, I now need to invest in all of this, you know, right? <laughs> because it's so easy to just have a training. You know, we buy yeah. this online training package. Everybody clicks through. Boom. Everybody trained. But um, that's the lazy way, I guess, to create Inclusion. Right. And, you know, what good is the training if we don't create opportunities for people to use the training when they're not uh, held accountable mm, Absolutely. for creating a workplace that is reflective of what they were trained about? You know, it, it's yeah. useless and it's just kind of a superficial demonstration of where that institution and likely where that leader is in their own kind of journey to be um, an effective leader today. I mean, I think eventually we will stop using terms like multicultural leader and inclusive leader and say, no, this is what leadership mm. looks like. Yeah, or female leader. That's my hope. Yes, or flim, fem, female leaders. That's my other. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I um, I'm so enjoying this conversation. It's very difficult to put an end to it, but eventually we have to we have to uh, uh, come to an end in our conversation. And I, I just wanted to say again, I really really appreciated your your um, availability, your interest in taking part in this conversation, sharing your insight, sharing your experience so generously with with an audience who probably very much needs to hear all of this. Um, I, for one, definitely had to had to hear all of this and, and you know, to, 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 to advance myself on, on a number of these issues and how I, I uh, see myself in organizations, how I could contribute for other organizations as well. So thank you very much, Kisha, and I just want to wish you really the best of success going, going forward with your work. Thank you so much, Agnes. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation and to learn from you as well. So thank you.